السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمد عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, once again we gather for the study of a very long hadith from Sahih al-Bukhari about Sulh al-Hudaybiyyah, the truce of Hudaybiyyah. For those who are following <coughs> in the original collection of Imam Bukhari, rahimahullah, the hadith number is 2731. For those who are following Imam Zayuddin al-Zabidi, rahmatullahi alayhi's abridgment of Sahih al-Bukhari, al-Tajrid al-Sarih, li'ahadith al-Jami'i al-Sahih, the number is 1192. We've already covered much of the hadith over the past few weeks. Today is the seventh lesson of this series. And we, we are approaching the end. A quick summary so far. The Prophet ﷺ left the holy city of Medina at the beginning of the month of Dhul-Hijjah, in the sixth year of Hijrah, with the intention of performing Umrah, the lesser pilgrimage. This was the first time he was heading to the holy city of Mecca ever since his Hijrah six years earlier. And he did so with very express peaceful intentions. Prophet ﷺ departed with a large group of companions numbering 15, approximately 1,500. They camped at Hudaybiyah, sorry, they camped at Dhul Hulayfa, a few miles out of the city of Medina, and there they entered into the sacred state of Ihram, and from there the Prophet ﷺ made his way to Mecca. A number of events took place on that journey which we've covered already. Having arrived at Hudaybiyah and camped there, further events took place, again which we've covered. Ultimately, the Prophet ﷺ and the Quraysh entered into negotiations. This led to the truce of Hudaybiyah, which we covered in detail last week. The truce that was negotiated consisted mainly of four articles. Number one, that the Muslims would not enter the holy city that year 
as was their original intention, rather, they would return to Medina and only come back the following year to complete their missed Umrah. When they would return the following year, they would enter the city and be allowed to reside in the city for only three days, during which the Quraysh wanted to vacate the city as they couldn't face the prospect of being in the same city, holy though it was, with the Muslims at the same time. After three days, the Muslims were to depart and they would no longer be able to remain in the holy city. Furthermore, when they would enter the city the following year within, in order to complete the Umrah, they would not be allowed to carry any weapons except the casual daily weapons that the Arabs would carry on their journeys. This was the first main article, which had a number of sub-articles. The second main article of the treaty was that any Muslim who departed from Mecca and joined the Muslims in Medina, by virtue of the treaty, the Muslims would be under an obligation to return that person to Mecca. However, if anyone from Medina decided to join the camp of the Meccans and flee to Mecca, then, rather lopsidedly, the Muckans were under no obligation to return that person to the Muslims. That was the second main article of the treaty. The third main article was that both parties agreed to lay down their weapons for ten years. So this wasn't actually a permanent treaty, rather it was a temporary truce for ten years. And the both sides would lay down their weapons and would not engage in any hostile activity or belligerence towards the other. And this was for a period of ten years. That was again the third main article. And the fourth article was that this treaty would be honoured by both parties in every way, and whoever wished to join the Muslims in alliance as part of this treaty then they would be allowed to do so. Similarly, anyone who wished to join the Quraysh would be allowed to do so. And whoever the joining allies were, all existing and eventual parties would be bound by all the agreements and all alliances would be honoured by both parties. So this was the fourth article of the treaty. And as a result, on that occasion immediately, the tribe of Khuzar, they seized the opportunity and announced their alliance with the Muslims as part of the treaty. And the Banu Bakr, who were their rivals, they again at the same time announced their alliance with the Quraysh. This detail is important, as I, as I mentioned last week, and I will comment on in a bit more detail further. So these were the four main articles of the treaty. Now, the Muslims found this extremely difficult to accept, along with the manner in which the treaty was concluded, and we've covered some of that in detail. So this is where we actually left off last week, 
And the final words were about Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu anhu approached the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and aired his concerns and his reservation. And then he went to Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu and aired the same reservation and concerns. And both the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu gave him an identical reply. This is where we left off. Umar radiyallahu anhu then says, قَالَ الزُّهْرِيُّ قَالَ عُمَرُ Umar says, فَعَمِلْتُ لِذَلِكَ أَعْمَالًا I did many good works because of this. And in other narrations, the wording is a bit more clearer. Umar radiyallahu anhu says, because of this, i.e. my objection at the time, my expressing my reservation, the manner in which I spoke, both especially to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He says, because of that, I did many good works. I continued to pray, giving charity, fast, free slaves, all in the hope of compensating for my failure on that day. Qal, <clears throat> the narrator continues, فَلَمَّا فَرَغَ مِنْ قَضِيَّةِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمُ بِسَّنَدِ الْمُتَّصِلِ مِنِّي إِلَّمَانِ الْبُخَارِيِ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ قَالْ with a continuous and uninterrupted chain from me to Imam Bukhari rahimahullah with his sanad till Misr ibn Makhramah radiyallahu anan Marwan ibn al-Hakam who both relates ultimately from Zuhri who says فَلَمَّا فَرَغَ مِنْ قَضِيَّ sorry, from Misr ibn Makhramah radiyallahu anan Marwan ibn al-Hakam who say فَلَمَّا فَرَغَ مِنْ قَضِيَّةِ الْكِتَابِ then when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam became free from the affair of the document meaning he concluded the writing of the document. Of course, he never wrote himself, rather he told Ali radiyallahu anhu was a scribe. There's an important point here, in some narrations of the hadith, it's suggested that, if you recall, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, that هَذَا مَا قَاضَى عَلَيْهِ مُحَمَّدٌ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ This is what Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah, concludes. So Suhail ibn Amr immediately objected and said, if we had acknowledged you as a messenger, we would have never opposed you, nor would we have prevented you from the house. Rather, write Muhammad ibn Abdullah, Muhammad the son of Abdullah, as is your name. So again, the Muslims were incensed by this objection and interjection. So, but Suhail ibn Amr insisted. And even Ali radiyallahu anhu, previously, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was dictating and said, write, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. So, Suhail ibn Amr objected and said, don't write, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. We don't recognize Ar-Rahman. Who's Ar-Rahman? I don't know who he is. Rather writes, Bismikallahumma, by your name or in your name, O oh Allah, as you used to write before. So Ali, the Prophet ﷺ told Ali radiallahu anhu to write, Bismikallahumma. Now it appears that Ali radiallahu anhu hadn't yet written Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Until the Prophet ﷺ told him, okay, write Bismillahumma. So Ali radiallahu anhu wrote Bismillahumma. 
Then the next sentence. The Prophet said, هَذَا مَا قَاضَى عَلَيْهِ مُحَمَّدٌ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ This is what the Messenger, Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah concludes. Immediately, Suhail ibn Amr objected. So, the Prophet said that, I am the Messenger of Allah, even though you may deny me. Then he said, write Muhammad Abdullah. When Suhail ibn Amr objected and demanded that they write Muhammad the serv- Muhammad ibn Abdullah, Muhammad the son of Abdullah, which was his name, and remove Rasulullah altogether. So it appears that at this point, Ali radiallahu anh had already written Muhammadun Rasulullah. So he actually wrote Rasulullah. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said to him, write Muhammad the son of Abdullah. But Ali radiallahu anh had already written Rasulullah. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa told him, strike it out. So Ali radiallahu anh declined to do so. He declined. And the reason was, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were all overcome with emotion. And they all reacted in different ways. Umar radiallahu anhum being Umar, that's the way he reacted. And Ali radiallahu anhu also declined to strike out the name Rasulullah. And the reason Ali radiallahu anhu, he was overwhelmed. And how could he, as a simple scribe in his view, People object to Umar radiallahu anhu's reaction on the day. People object to the Sahaba radiallahu anhu's reaction on the day. But then we have to look at it comprehensively. All of the Sahaba radiallahu anhu were affected on that day. All of them. Even Ali radiallahu anhu. So just as Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu reacted and was overcome by emotion, Ali radiyallahu anhu was also overcome by emotion and was in a state of shock. And he also, when the Prophet sallallahu told him, strike my name, meaning strike Rasulullah, the Messenger of Allah, Ali radiyallahu anhu declined to do so. And his reasoning was, that how could he as a simple scribe cancel out Remove the words Rasulullah. So then the Prophet ﷺ realized his reservation. He, he also harbored a reservation. Umar had reservations. Ali had a reservation. Though they manifested themselves in different ways. So the Prophet ﷺ realizing Ali radiallahu's reluctance. In fact, his inability to remove the name, Rasulullah, he said to Ali radiallahu an, he demanded the pen. And then he said to Ali radiallahu an, show me where it is. And then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa having been shown his name 
and the words Rasulullah, he himself deleted Rasulullah. And then Ali radiallahu anhu took the pen and wrote the son of Abdullah. Some people have suggested, as a result of that, that the Prophet knew how to write. And he himself authored the document or part of it. Or that he was able to write and read a few words. So, this is the reality of what happened on the day. He was merely shown the words, that these are the words that say Rasulullah. He was actually shown from where to where. And then the Prophet ﷺ crossed out those words himself, because Ali radiallahu anh had already written them. Otherwise, it's a belief of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah that the Prophet ﷺ could not write. And Allah Himself says in Surah Al-Ankabut, وَمَا كُنْتَ تَتْلُو مِنْ قَبْلِهِ مِنْ كِتَابٍ وَلَا تَخُطُّهُ بِيَمِينِكِ إِذَا لَرْتَابًا مُطِّلُونَ بَلْ هُوَ آيَاتٌ بَيِّنَاتٌ فِي صُدُورِ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْعِلْمِ Allah says, addressing the Prophet wasallam, that before this, you were not one who was able to read any book. The word kitab originally in Arabic simply means document. So which could refer to a simple page, a single scroll, like here. This is also called the kitab, the document. Or it can refer to a bound book. But the word kitab in Arabic originally simply means a written thing. So a document. So Allah says you were not one before this to be able to read any book. Any. Min kitabin. So the word signifies the non-specific nature of the word kitab in Arabic refers to any book. He was unable to read any book. وَلَا تَخُطُّهُ بِيَمِينِكَ And nor were you able to write with your hand. So the Qur'an categorically states that he could not read or write. Surprisingly, some people say, but the words say, before this. That means he managed to learn to read and write after this. Which is surprising. All the Qur'an is trying to say is that before this, i.e. before the revelation of the Qur'an to you, you were not one who was able to read or write. And therein lies a miracle of the Qur'an. That for a whole 40 years, the Prophet ﷺ could not read or write. Why after the revelation of these verses would he suddenly learn how to read and write? That was the very nature of his miracle. He was unable to recite poetry. In fact, compose poetry. In fact, he was unable to recall poetry. He couldn't cite other people's poetry. He could not recall or cite his own uncle's poetry about himself, about the Prophet ﷺ. And yet he produced the Qur'an. He could not read or write, and yet he produced the Qur'an. So that was part of his miracle. So the belief of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah is that the Prophet ﷺ could not read or write and he was unlettered. So 
the narrator says, So when he concluded the affair of the documents, the writing of the documents, قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ لِأَصْحَابِهِ Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to his companions, Um, rise, fanhur, and slaughter your animals. Thummahliku, then shave your heads. Qala, he says, in fact, this was Umar radiallahu anhu later. فَوَاللَّهِ مَا قَامَ مِنْهُمْ رَجُلٌ حَتَّى قَالَ ذَلِكَ ثَلَاثَ مَرَّاتٍ Now let me explain something. When he concluded writing the document, not writing himself as I've explained, but rather dictating the document, and written by Ali radiallahu anh as a scribe, and a number of people were made witnesses to this document. So the signatory on the part of the Muslims was the Prophet ﷺ. The signatory on behalf of the Quraysh was Suhail ibn Amr. But one of the witnesses on behalf of the Quraysh was Mikraz ibn Hafs, the other person who was with Suhail ibn Amr. And the witnesses amongst the Muslims were Abu Bakr anh, Umar anh, Ali was a scribe, and various other Sahaba. Following this, the Prophet ﷺ said to the companions, Rise and shave your heads. And rise, slaughter your animals and shave your heads. What was the significance of this? They had travelled with the intention of performing the Umrah. And they had also brought along with them their hadi, their sacrificial animals. And one of the laws of the rites and rituals of Hajj and Umrah was that whoever brings along or drives along with them sacrificial animals to be slaughtered in the precincts of Mecca, they are unable to become halal, i.e. come out of the consecrated state of ihram until they have slaughtered their animals. So that is a condition. Just as those who don't take along sacrificial animals with them, before they can become halal, they need to complete a number of rites and rituals. And even then, what marks the eventual coming out from the state of ihram into the state of being halal? Shaving one's head. The halq. Or clipping one's hair. But for those who drive sacrificial animals to the holy sites. Another condition for them becoming halal is that they have to slaughter their animals first before they can become halal. Now, since the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba had brought along with them a number of animals, from many narrations we learn that there were 70, 70 large animals. So, and in each large animal, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, not all of them, but many of them, they were they all had a share each. So there were seven shares in large anim- in each large animal. So approximately one third 
of the whole group of pilgrims had made the intention of sacrificing animals and brought them along with them. So there were 70 animals and in each animal, seven of them of the Sahaba radiallahu anhu had a share each. So ultimately that makes about one third of the whole group of pilgrims. So since they had these sacrificial animals, they could only become halal by slaughtering the animals there and then, and also shaving their heads. But there were a number of issues here. First of all, one of the laws of sacrificing the animals, which even the Arabs before Islam recognized and honored, is that the whole idea of the sacrificial animal, the hadi, is that it is led to the precincts of al-Masjid al-Haram of Mecca. Or Mina, and slaughtered there. And you can't slaughter these animals before they reach their mahil, their station. And the station is Mecca and the precincts of Mecca, including Mina. But they were in Hudaybiyah, they had been prevented from entering the holy city. So that means they had driven the animals all the way till here. How could they slaughter the animals here before the animals have reached the destin- their destination, i.e. the precincts of Mecca? That was one issue. Number two, a person only becomes halal from the state of Ihram once they have completed their Umrah or their Hajj, their pilgrimage. Now the Sahaba radiallahu anhum had traveled all the way from Medina undertook, undertaken such a long and arduous and hazardous journey with many pitfalls, many events, many dangers. They had braved all these dangers. And now a few miles out of Mecca, they were stopped and they were forced to turn back without seeing the Kaaba, without reaching the holy city and performing the rites of Umrah. How could they become halal? a few miles out of Mecca, without performing the Umrah. This bore down heavily on them. But, by virtue of the treaty, they had to turn back. But there's an interesting question here. And again, in order to understand this, there is a masala. The masala is this, that a person should only enter into the state of Ihram, once they've made their intention for Umrah or for Hajj. They must do it before the station, though they can do it well before. And this is why when people are travelling from here, they may put on the Ihram and enter. There's a difference, as I keep on saying. The the word Ihram means consecration. It's actually an adverb. Well, it's actually an adverb. A nominal verb, which, uh, meaning that it refers to the action of entering into the state of ihram. So ihram refers to its gerund. It refers to the action of entering into a haram state. 
over the years through usage, for some reason, we now refer to ihram as being the two pieces of cloth. But that was never the original meaning. The two pieces of cloth were always just referred to as two pieces of cloth. They, were not, they weren't really referred to as ihram. Ihram refers to the state. And even before the state, ihram refers to the action of entering into the state of being haram. So there's a clear difference between the two. You can put on the two pieces of cloth or the clothing that you intend to wear during the state of being haram. But putting those two pieces of cloth on does not consecrate the state of ihram. Rather, to enter this haram state, you have to make the intention, and then you have to ratify the intention by pronouncing the talbiyah. So in, according to other ulama, the intention is sufficient. But according in the Hanafi school of fiqh, there is actually a two-factor process. There are two stages to entering into the state of ihram. Making the intention according to the Hanafi fiqh is not sufficient. So you have to, there are two stages, two mini stages. One, you have to make the intention. And then once you've made that intention of entering into the state of ihram, you have to ratify that intention by saying talbiyah, labbaik, Allahumma labbaik. That's the second factor. With these two stages, with these two factors, a person then enters into a haram state. Regardless of when they actually put on the two pieces of cloth. So you could put on the two pieces of cloth here at home in Leicester, for instance. And then make the intention at the airport. And enter into the haram state there. Or you could do it just before you arrive at Jiddah. Or... You can delay the wearing of the two pieces of cloth all the way till just before Jiddah. Or you could actually put on the two pieces of cloth and enter into the state of ihram by pronouncing your intention and your talbiyah, labbaik Allahumma labbaik, at home. Regardless of where you did it, all of these are permissible, but you cannot do it beyond the miqat, you must do it before the miqat, the station. However, once you enter into the state of ihram, a rather unknown masala is this. You can actually remain in the state of ihram for as long as you need to. So imagine if you entered into the state of ihram and you traveled. And at some stage, you were prevented from continuing your journey. For any reason, once you're Progress is impeded. Your path is obstructed. You are someone known as muhsar. Muhsar means the impeded, obstructed one. Once you become a muhsar, it could be anywhere. It could be here. It could be just before you arrive. It could be just before you enter the city of Mecca. It doesn't matter. At any stage of your journey, once you have entered into the haram state... 
and you are unable to compete your, complete your journey all the way to Mecca, wherever you are stopped and your uh, advance is impeded, your continuation is obstructed, then you become a muhsar. Once you become a muhsar, there are new laws that apply. And this is what happened with the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba anhum. They were obstructed. They all became muhsar. So one of the rules of muhsar is that you don't have to break your ihram. You can actually return home. So imagine you were traveling and for some reason you were unable to continue. And you were actually told that you would be allowed to continue next year. So go back and come back next year. You have two choices. One of them is, abiding by the laws of the muhsar, you break your ihram. And you become halal. And you do what the Prophet ﷺ did. The other option is, you go back and you remain in your ihram for one whole year at home. So, the, you don't, there is no limit to the ihram. So you can actually be roaming around Leicester in the state of ihram. You could do it for a whole year if need be. So, I'd like you to understand that before you before we continue with the hadith. So the Prophet ﷺ, now that he had agreed to return to Medina, he himself could have done any one of the two things. One option was to break the ihram there and become halal. At Hudaybiyah. And the other option was to return to Medina with the companions, with all of them remaining in a haram state and waiting in the state of ihram for a whole year before returning in, before returning the next year. The Prophet ﷺ decided to do the former, which is to break the ihram and to return in a halal state. And to return to, to Medina. And then come back the following year with a new state of ihram. So this is why he told the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, Qum, rise. At Fanhiru. Rise and Fanhiru thumma Rise and then slaughter your animals, then shave your heads. And with that they would have become halal. Qala, he says, فَوَاللَّهِ مَا قَامُ مِنْهُمْ رَجْمٌ By Allah, not one man amongst them stood up. Even though he said, rise, not one person stood up. حَتَّى قَالَ ذَلِكَ ثَلَاثَ مَرَّاتٍ Until he said this three times. So he told them, boom. فَنْحَرُوا ثُمَّ حَلِقُوا Rise. Slaughter your animals. Then shave your heads. No one said a word. No one stood up. Then he said it again. Rise. Slaughter your animals. Shave your heads. No one stood up. Then he said it a third time. Rise, shave, slaughter your animals and shave your heads. Not one person amongst them stood up. Again, some people object that why were the Sahaba radiallahu anhum so disobedient? 
before the question was only about Umar radiallahu Now, what, what's about Abu Bakr and Umar? None of them stood up. Well, that included Ali radiallahu Neither did he stand up. Or the other Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Not one of them stood up. What happened? The ulama have explained this in different ways. One of the key reasons was, as I've told you before, that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were in, an, in a state of absolute shock. This was something they had never experienced before. Never. They were unfazed by anything before this. 300 of them, lightly armed, lightly equipped. They were unfazed when they had to face an army in the Battle of Badr. Three times their size, fully armed, covered in armor. They were unfazed. They defeated them. At every junction... Whenever the Prophet ﷺ said, rise with me, bleed with me, march with me, they all stood with him. Because they were a warrior nation. They reveled in warfare. They relished adventure. And that's what many of their poems were about. The Arabs were a tribal warrior-like nation. They had uh, a code of chivalry. So these were warriors from the desert. And this is why, as I've said before, the Arabia was never conquered. It was never conquered by the massive Sasanid Persian Empire. That was hugely powerful. It was never conquered by the Byzantine Roman Empire with their Roman legions and their organization and their military discipline and their experience of warfare. And both these two superpowers, the Sassanid Persian Empire, the Byzantine Roman Empire, had spent years and years honing their military skills and engaged in warfare against the other. They were battle-hardened. And yet, in all of these years, over centuries, none of these armies ever conquered Arabia, subjugated Arabia, or vanquished Arabia. It's because the Arabs were, they were, people regarded, they regarded them as being wild. They regarded them as being wild Bedouin, absolutely fierce, hardened warriors, who were reckless. And this is why, what did the Sassanids do? They created a buffer zone between them and the rest of the Arabs, using the Lakhmid Arab legions, who were the vassals of the Sassanid Persians. And they were towards the northeast and the northeast of Arabia. They acted as a buffer zone between the rest of the Arabs and the Sassanid Persian Empire. And towards the north and the northwest, well, towards the north, the... Byzantines, they employed the Ghassanids, the Banu Ghassan, as an Arab buffer zone. And the mentality of both superpowers was 
that these Arabs are too difficult to control. So it's best if we leave it to the, their fellow Arabs to control them. So the Sasanids use the Lakhmids, and the Byzantines, they use the Hassanids. Now when you think of that, this is how the Arabs were. They were a fierce, warrior-like nation. And they were hardened warriors. They lived in the desert. Nothing fazed them. This kind of treaty that they had just signed with the Prophet ﷺ, between the Prophet ﷺ and the Quraysh, this was something that was unknown to them. They were in a state of absolute shock and consternation. It's almost like they had given up everything. They came to do Umrah. They can't do Umrah. They wanted to return to the house of Allah. They couldn't visit the house of Allah. They wanted to return to their home city. They could not return to their home city. They were prepared for battle. There was no battle. The Muslims, if anyone wished to join them, they could not join them. They had to be forcibly returned. If anyone fled from them, they could not hold them back. They, they were under an obligation to let them go. So all of this seemed to be so lopsided. And at the same time, they, from their normal human perspective, witnessed what they regarded as an absolute humiliation. Even in the writing of the treaty, they had to exclude the name of Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. They had to exclude the title Rasulullah, for the Prophet ﷺ, the Messenger of Allah. And the Quraysh did all of this, not because they would get gain anything material out of this. The only thing they would gain is that by preventing the Muslims from entering the city this year, but delaying it only by a year, they would save face. And this was something unheard of, unprecedented. So the Sahaba radiallahu anhu were in a state of absolute shock. Also, we may not attach much significance to this, but for them, the rites and the rituals of Umrah, the state of being haram, the sacrificial animals that they had brought along with them, these were all very dear to them. They were very devoted to all of these rites and rituals and the sacrificial animals. And they could not complete their journey. Now they had to sacrifice their animals there and then, before they had reached their destination in the holy precincts. So all of this put together, collectively, bore down heavily on them and put them in an, in a shocked state, in a state of consternation. They were unable to respond. Those who did respond, they were stunned into silence. Those who did respond were unable to control their response. Like Umar radiallahu anhu. They were unable to regulate their response. Like Umar radiallahu anhu. Even Ali radiallahu anhu. He declined to strike off the name Rasulullah. The Prophet ﷺ had to do it himself. So the Sahaba anhum were in a state of absolute shock. Not one of them stood up. That's the main reason. Another reason is that the ulama explain is that the well, what I've just explained. That's my explanation. The ulama have offered other explanations. One of the explanations is that the 
Sahaba radiallahu anhum were still hopeful that they would receive some revelation. Some revelation would come to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Either negating the treaty or articles of the treaty or introducing some change that would allow them to continue with their umrah. Or and this is another explanation. They were hoping that the Prophet ﷺ would at least do. They thought, remember the two options I mentioned? The first option is that you break your ihram and you become halal. The Prophet ﷺ didn't tell them that I am going to become halal. He said to them, you rise, you slaughter your animals, and you shave your heads. This was no nothing to do with himself. So the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, one explanation is they actually thought that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam himself personally was going to act on the other option, which is that he was not going to break his ihram. He was going to. He was not going to become halal. Rather, he was going to return to Medina in a haram state and remain in the state of ihram for a whole year, and return the following year, and complete his umrah with the same ihram. And the Prophet ﷺ had demonstrated that, where he himself would fast, but tell everyone else, don't fast. Where he would choose the harder option, and encourage the Sahaba anhum to take and assume the lighter option. But they, in their resilience, they wanted to do exactly what the Prophet ﷺ did. Which is, if he was going to go back in a state of ihram, why? They did not want to break their ihram either. They wanted to go back in a haram state along with him. This is another explanation. And this is actually supported by what... This explanation, what I said at the beginning, about them being in a state of shock. Both of these explanations are supported by some words of the hadith, actually the, the advice of Umm Salamah So he says, Not a single man amongst them stood up. Until he said this three times. So then when not one of them stood up, دَخَلَ عَلَىٰ أُمِّ السَّلَمَةَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهَا The Prophet ﷺ visited Umm Salama in her tent. Umm Salama رضي الله عنها had accompanied the Prophet ﷺ on this journey. And he went to her tent. فَذَكَرَ لَهَا مَا لَقِيَ مِنَ النَّاسِ So he, he mentioned to her what he had faced from the people. I, that I told them to rise and slaughter their animals and shave their heads and become halal. And not one of them stood up. I told them three times. Not one of them stood up. So he complained to Umm Salama radiyallahu anha what he had just experienced. فَقَالَتْ أُمُّ السَّلَمَةِ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهَا So Umm السَّلَمَةِ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهَا said, يَا نَبِيَ اللَّهُ O Prophet of Allah. 
أَتُحِبُّ ذَلِكَ Are you desirous of this? Meaning, are you desirous of seeing the companions shave their heads, slaughter their animals, and become halal? In that case, أُخْرُجْ Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha said, go out. ثُمَّ لَا تُكَلِّمْ أَحْدًا مِّنْهُمْ كَلِمًا then do not speak a single word to any one of them. Don't say anything. Until you slaughter your sacrificial animals. Budn is jam'a badana. And you call your Baba. Then he should shave your head. So the Prophet went out. He did not speak to any one of them. Until he did this. He slaughtered his sacrificial animals. And he called his barber. According to some narrations, who was his barber? It's the same Sahabi who was sent to Mecca, Khirash ibn Umayyah. Remember I said that he sent two companions to Mecca. The first one was Khirash ibn Umayyah, who was mistreated but ultimately released and uh, allowed to come back. And the second one was Uthman ibn Affan, who was detained, which led to the Bay'atul Ridwan. So that Sahabi who went, Khirash ibn Umayyah radiyallahu anhu, he was actually the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam's barber. So Khirash ibn Umayyah radiyallahu anhu, he shaved the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam's head. So when they saw this, they rose, then they slaughtered their animals. And then, some of them began shaving the heads of one another. Until some, until some of them were close to killing each other out of sorrow. Meaning, when they were shaving one another's heads, they were doing it rather harshly in their sorrow and in their suppressed anger. When they were shaving their heads, it's almost as though they were about to cut off each other's necks with such ferocity and anger. Not anger, sorrow. Now, obviously when they saw that the Prophet ﷺ had come out, and he did this himself, that means he chose the former option of becoming halal, and that he wasn't going to stay in a haram state. So then, they should now do the same. That was one thing. Furthermore, Umm Salama radiyallahu anha, also it's not mentioned in this narration, but in other narrations, <coughs> she said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, O Prophet of Allah, do not rebuke the companions and do not blame them. Her words were, do not blame them. For you have seen 
what has befallen their hearts and minds of the gravity of this whole affair. This whole episode of Hudaybiyah, the treaty, the articles of the truce, the conditions they've had to accept, they're being obstructed from entering the city. Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha explained to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Prophet of Allah, do not blame them. For you have seen the enormity and the gravity of what they have experienced of this treaty and its conditions and the events. Then she said, Ya Rasulullah, go out and do this. It's remarkable. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam This shows that the relationship he had with his wives. He spoke to them. He lightened his load. He lightened his burden. He confided in them. He shared his sorrow with them. And not only that, but he also consulted them. But then again, the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, they also viewed him in a certain way. And the first words of this hadith are, Ya Nabi Allah, O Prophet of Allah. They saw him as a messenger of Allah, not just as a husband. And therefore it was a relationship full of deference and respect and awe. And of obedience. So she said, Ya Nabi Allah. Then the advice Umm Salamah radiallahu anha gave was priceless. Because it was on that basis the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam actually acted on her advice. These accusations or some of the fancy stories that are thrown around about Muslims and sometimes by Muslims themselves that oh you should ask your wife for advice and then do the opposite or never consult your wives etc All, all of these suggestions are unfounded. They have no basis. And the supreme example is this. On a critical occasion, in a critical situation such as this, on, at such a sensitive time, the Prophet ﷺ visited Umm Salama and he shared his sorrow with her. He told her of his experience. Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha offered her advice. And lo and behold, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam immediately, without hesitation, saw the validity and the wisdom of her advice. And he went out and he acted on it. And true to her word, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum did exactly what she expected them to do.
Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha was wise, extremely wise. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam proposed to her, her husband when he passed away, Abu Salamah radiyallahu anha, during his lifetime, he had heard a hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That the Prophet said that whoever is struck by a calamity, then they should read the following dua. Allahumma jurni fi musibati wa akhlifli khayran minha. That O oh Allah, grant me a reward in my misfortune. And cause to come after this calamity some good for me. After the calamity, bring about some good for me. So Umm Salamah radiallahu anha, Abu Salamah radiallahu anha came home, and at some stage he related this hadith to her. That the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gave this advice that when someone is struck by a calamity of misfortune, they should read this dua. When Abu Salamah radiyallahu anha passed away, Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha would recite, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Allahumma ajurni fi musibati wa akhlifli khayran minha. That, O oh Allah, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. O oh Allah, grant me a reward in my misfortune and cause to and cause some good to come to me following this calamity. And she's, she says, I used to think, I used to pray the dua, but I used to think, how can any other good come to me after Abu Salama? How can any good come to me after Abu Salama? Can there be anyone better than Abu Salama? So the Prophet ﷺ sent word to her some time later, proposing to her. So Umm Salamah anha actually declined. Well, she didn't decline. She didn't say no outright. She sent her reasons for her reservation. Not declined, but she sent her reasons for her reservation. And she said, Ya Rasulullah, one, I am not young. I have children and I do not wish for them to become a burden on you or to trouble you in any way since he would have to look after them and number three I am a woman of intense jealousy jealousy more intense than most women so the Prophet sent back a reply of three things first he said, you say you are old. Well, the one proposing to you is no younger than you. Two, your children, Allah will, they won't trouble me and Allah will take care of them. They will not be a burden on me. And three, as for your ghayrah, as for your intense jealousy, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will remove it. She accepted. Then she herself says, 
that by Allah, Allah removed my jealousy to such an extent that it's almost as though it was never there. But Umm Salama radiyallahu anha was very wise and intelligent and wise. And here as well, she demonstrated her wisdom, her intelligence. And she advised the Prophet ﷺ on such an occasion that he, Rasulullah, acted on her advice. And based on her advice, the Sahaba responded to her advice more than they responded to his words. And if men pray that Allah grants them wives who follow in the footsteps of Umm Salamah radiallahu anha, then surely the women will also pray that Allah grants them husbands who follow in the footsteps of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. You can't have one but not the other. Men expect wives with the beauty of models. The grace, the name, and the fame of stars. The culinary skills of professional chefs. And at the same time, the piety of the Sahabiyyat radiallahu anhum. You can get them. You, you can. Just wait till you die. Al-Hur al But men want this, yet they're themselves. What of their conduct, their character, their akhlaq, their piety, their behavior? And vice versa. Ladies want men. And I won't go into the description. But they want men who fulfill all the ambitions and the dreams and the hopes and the aspirations of the world. Perfect man. Cut, modelled, chiselled, handsome, rich, intelligent, wealthy. Maybe that's at the top of the list. And at the same time, they want him to be a paragon of virtue. And someone with the piety of the Sahaba, and undoubtedly the patience of a prophet. And yet, they themselves, what do they bring? Truth is, we should look in the mirror. Both the physical mirror and the metaphorical mirror. And ask ourselves, in all honesty and sincerity, just between ourselves, the mirror and Allah. What do I deserve? Who do I deserve? Seriously. 
Look in the physical mirror and the metaphorical mirror. Look at oneself, the appearance, as well as one's character, one's very being. And that's everything that one knows about oneself. And then ask a sincere question, who and what do I actually deserve? It doesn't mean we have to sell ourselves short. Nor does it mean that we have to indulge in bouts of self-loathing, navel-gazing and self-flagellation. But it means to be balanced and to be realistic. Not to sell ourselves short, but also not to oversell ourselves. Khairan, Umm Salama radiyallahu anha advised the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam acted on the advice the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum did what the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did as is explained here. The next part of the hadith is a sudden shift to some of the events that took place once the Prophet ﷺ returned to Medina. So I won't discuss this now, because there's a sudden shift, because all the words are, ثُمَّ جَاءُهُ نِسْوَةٌ مُؤْمِنَاتٌ Then believing women came to the Prophet ﷺ. This is not at Hudaybiyah or anywhere near Mecca. This is after the Prophet ﷺ returned to Medina. Now, in between that period, a lot happened. So the Prophet wasallam and the Sahaba عنه, became halal, and they turned back from Hudaybiyah, and the Quraysh returned to Mecca, because they were camped outside a large contingent of them. On the journey from Mecca al-Mukarramah to Medina, a few other things happened. One of them is the famous incident about... The Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba oversleeping at Fajr. So they rode and travelled late into the night. Then the Prophet ﷺ said, Who will guard us during the night? Bilal said, I will. The Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba slept. Bilal fell asleep. And in the morning, when the sun had risen, the warm rays of the sun fell on Umar ibn Khattab and he leapt up. Woke up Bilal and they woke up Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam woke up. He didn't blame anyone. For Allah subhanahu, in fact he recognized and acknowledged that Allah had caused this. So that it could be a lesson to people afterwards. And a benefit for people afterwards. So that he could demonstrate what people should do. So subhanallah, even the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had his salah qada. Because he overslept. So... Prophet sallallahu rose. He told the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum to pack. And then he moved on. He didn't pray Fajr Salah there. He moved on, went a bit further. And there, he told, he camped, 
did wudu, told the Sahaba radiallahu anhum to do wudu, and then in jama'ah, collectively, in congregation, they prayed Fajr Salah. And according to one narration, why did they do that? According to one narration, because of the effect and the influence of shaitan at the other place. This is why the ulama say, one of the things to do with tawbah is that if you truly want to repent, repent means you change. You come back from where you were. Because tawbah yatub, one of the meanings of tawbah yatub tawbatan is to return. So wherever you have gone out, to a place where you shouldn't have been, where you shouldn't have gone out, you come back from there. That's tawbah. That's a return to your pure state. Which means that tawbah is not just for verbal. You don't just repent verbally. You have to make all the necessary changes. <coughs> and tawbah, repentance has many R's, as I keep on saying. Repentance can only be true if you repent. How? You repent. You have remorse. You refrain from the sin at that time, during the period of repentance. You have resolve never to return to the sin again. You reform, not just yourself, but you reform and you repair any damages you have caused. You repair any damage you have made to yourself, to others. Another R is to remove yourself from the place, the environment, and the company in which you committed sins. Without removal from that company, without removal from that environment, without removal from that place, there's always a danger that you will return, not from the sin, but to the sin. And that's illustrated by the Prophet ﷺ. Subhanallah, he was a messenger of Allah. And yet, when they woke up, the place where they missed their salah, he told all of them, move from here. And they traveled. And they only made it for fajr salah. They delayed it longer. But they only performed it and they made up for it at a distance from the original location where they missed their salah. Because of the effects and the influence of shaitan in that place. So, when it comes to sins, one has to do proper hijrah. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ says, The true muhajir, the true emigrant, is the one who abandons and shuns the prohibitions of Allah. And as I explained in the commentary of uh, Hijrah, Hadith of Hijrah, what does Hijrah originally mean? The, me- the meaning of Hijrah is emigration. But the original meaning of Hijrah, this is a secondary or tertiary meaning. The original meaning of Hijrah is to abandon, to shun. يَا أَيُّهَا الْمُدَّثِّرْ قُمْ فَأَنذِرْ وَرَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرْ وَثِيَابَكَ فَطَاهِرْ وَالرُّجْزَ فَهَجُرْ Allah says, addressing the Messenger وسلم, in one of the earliest verses ever to be revealed to him, or one wrapped in a mantle, rise and warm, and your Lord glorify, and your clothes purify, 
and impurity shun, abandon. And the Rasul will say on the day of judgment, وَقَالَ الرَّسُولُ يَا رَبِّ إِنَّ قَوْمِ اتَّخَذُوا هَذَا الْقُرْآنَ مَهْجُورًا O oh my Lord, and the Messenger will say, O oh my Lord, this people of mine have left this Qur'an mahjura, meaning abandoned, shunned. So the meaning of hijrah is to shun, to abandon, to leave. So we have to do hijrah from our sins. And the hijrah takes all forms. Not only do you shun the sin, you physically do hijrah and remove yourself and you physically emigrate from the place of sin to another place. So this is one of the things that happened on that day, uh, sorry, on that part of the journey back to Medina from Mecca at the time of Hudaybiyah is that they missed their salah and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa the sahaba radiyallahu anhum had to make up for their salah later. Now, there's an interesting note here, is that if you look, actually in some of the narrations, there are three places or three times that are mentioned for these, for this incident. One, in some ahadith, is a return from Hudaybiyah. In other ahadith, it's a return in the seventh year from Khaybar. And in other ahadith, it's a return from Tabuk in the ninth year of Hijrah. So which of the three is correct? The only explanation that ulama have given is that in fact all three of them are correct. And this means that the Prophet ﷺ actually missed his salah and overslept with the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Not just in the sixth year of Hijrah, traveling from Mecca to Medina at the time of Hudaybiyah. But he also missed it a year later, traveling from Khaybar to the north of Medina, back to Medina. And he also missed it in the ninth year of Hijrah, traveling from Tabuk, back south to Medina. So it happened actually on three occasions. That's one of the incidents that took place on his return to Medina from Hudaybiyah. Another incident, which I referred to right at the beginning... And I said I will comment on it in some detail, or I'll mention it later, which is that on the return journey, at one stage, Sahaba radiallahu anhum stopped. They approached the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and they said to him, Ya Rasulullah, we are hungry, food is running out, or food has run out. So some of the companions have additional camels that they aren't riding, spare camels. So please instruct them to slaughter these camels and share the food so that we may eat. So Umar said, Ya Rasulullah, this wouldn't be a good idea. It's better for us that we do have some spare camels. So the Prophet wasallam said to the Sahaba anhum, Indeed, don't slaughter the camels. Rather, make an announcement. Spread your leather mats. Your spreads. And your cloaks. So, spread your cloaks and your leather mats. And bring... Any of the dry foods that you have. 
So one is food that they could cook, meat, etc. Otherwise, bring your dry foods, muqassarat, these nuts and raisins and etc. So the Sahaba radiallahu brought them. And they emptied whatever they had. And he wasn't much. All of them brought what they could and he was left in a small pile. There were 1500 Sahaba The Prophet did something with the food and then blessed it, prayed on it, told the Sahaba to eat from it. All of the Sahaba ate to their fill. Then, a short while later, it was Asr Salah time. And the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was there in the desert preparing for Asr Salah. He had, he had a water skin in front of him. And he was doing wudu from the water skin. Some of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum approached him and said, Ya Rasulullah, the water has run we don't even have water to drink, let alone to do wudu. So the Prophet ﷺ then did something miraculous. And this is a famous authentic hadith. The skin of water that he had, the Prophet ﷺ placed his noble hand therein. And then the Sahaba witnessed Water bubbling and rising and then actually flowing from between his fingers. Jabir ibn Abdullah, it's a hadith of Bukhari. Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhu says, well the Sahaba radiallahu anhu say that we all drank to our fill, we filled our water bags and skins and we also did wudu with that water. Jabir ibn Abdullah when he narrated the story, his, his student said to him, O oh Jabir, how many of you were there? He said, if there had been a hundred thousand of us, the water would have been sufficient for all of us. But we were only fifteen hundred. So this was, in fact, this similar, a similar miracle occurred on other occasions as well, but we don't have time to go into it. But if you recall... Much earlier on, I mentioned that at Hudaybiyah, the Sahaba anhum ran out of water and the Prophet wasallam displayed the miracle of water on that occasion. This is different because then there was a well, but there was hardly any water left because it had all been taken out. So the Prophet wasallam spat, he washed his noble face and hands and he spat into the water. The water was then poured back into the well. Then he took an arrow and gave it to one of the companions. And the Prophet ﷺ arrow was stuck into the ground, into the base of the well, by one of the companions. And then the water started bubbling. So that was a completely different incident. And this incident is completely different. This wasn't a well. This was on the return journey to Medina. And prior to the miracle of water, earlier on, was the miracle of feeding the whole 1,500 group of pilgrims using just dry foodstuffs. And then the miracle of this water. There was no well. 
it was, the water was bubbling with, from the hands of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the water bag. So this was another uh, miraculous incident that actually took place on the return journey. And the Sahaba radiyallahu, and the same incident, a similar incident, or a similar miracle occurred on other occasions. So this is one more incident that the Prophet, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Sahaba radiyallahu anhu experienced on their return journey to Medina. Finally, one more thing that happened is that it was on this leg of the whole journey from Mecca to Medina after the truce of Hudaybiyah that the Prophet ﷺ received the revelation of Surah Al-Fatih. And Umar explains it beautifully. He says, because of what happened with the Prophet ﷺ earlier on, that he approached the Messenger of Allah and he spoke to him, as we covered in the hadith last week. Then he approached Abu Bakr radiallahu He had already began regretting it. So he says that I was traveling with the Prophet sallallahu wasallam on the return journey from Hudaybiyah, and I approached him, and I attempted to speak to him. Oh, Messenger of Allah, Prophet sallallahu wasallam remained silent. I spoke to him again. He remained silent. I repeated this the third time and I tried to speak to him again. Prophet remained silent. Umar say that grief seized me and addressing himself he said, Oh Umar, thrice you persisted and you have hurt the messenger of Allah for he did not reply to you. Then he said, I fear that some Qur'an may be revealed about me. Because he was regretting the manner in which he spoke to the Prophet ﷺ earlier on. So he said, I moved away. And he was fearful. And he said, I went ahead to the front part of the group of Muslims. So he was riding ahead. This meant that the Prophet ﷺ wasn't necessarily at the front always. Rather... They were in a large group, caravans, and sometimes the Prophet would be traveling in one small subgroup, and the other Sahaba would be in front. So here, Umar says, I rode away from him and joined the group at the front of the caravan. And whilst I was riding there, seized by grief, he says, I heard someone call out my name and saying, Umar, the Prophet summoned you. So I instantly feared that Allah has revealed verses of the Qur'an about me. It was fearful. So I rode up to him, and then the Prophet ﷺ said to him, O Umar, Allah has revealed to me a surah, which is more beloved to me than anything else on earth. And then he recited, Inna fatahna laka fatham mubina. لِيَغْفِرَ لَكَ اللَّهُ مَا تَقَدَّمَ مِنْ ذَمِّكَ وَمَا تَأَخَّرَ وَيَتِمَّ نِعْمَتَهُ عَلَيْكَ وَيَهْدِيكَ صِرَاطٌ مُسْتَقِيمًا وَيَنْصُرَكَ اللَّهُ نَصْرًا عَزِيزًا Till the next verse. That, إِنَّا فَتَحْنَا لَكَ فَتْحًا مُبِينًا Indeed, we have scored a great victory for you. Literally, indeed, we have opened up a great deliverance for you. A clear deliverance. So that Allah may forgive you your sins, past and future. 
And so that Allah may complete his favor upon you. And the address is singular only to the Prophet wasallam, not to all of them. So, not So that Allah may forgive you your sins, O Messenger of Allah, past and future. And so that Allah may f- complete his favor upon you, O Messenger of Allah. And so that Allah may guide you, O Messenger of Allah, along the straight path. So the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, and then Umar radiallahu anhu heard this. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa informed the other Sahaba radiallahu anhum. So some of them said, O Prophet of Allah, because the beginning verses are exclusively about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum said, Hani'am mari'an laka ya Rasulullah, congratulations to you, O Messenger of Allah. Felicitations to you, congratulations to you, and may this be blessed for you. What's in it for us? <laughs> they actually said, what's in it for us? So the Prophet ﷺ recited to them the next verses. That, so that Allah may enter the believing men and believing women into gardens beneath which rivers shall flow. And actually, خَالِدِينَ fiha, wherein they shall reside forever, وَيَكَفِّرَ عَنْهُمْ سَيِّئَاتِهِمْ and so that Allah may remove their ills, i.e. forgive them their sins. So these verses were then about the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. But the whole surah was revealed. And in fact the entire surah was revealed on the return journey. The whole of Surah Al-Fatih from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa departing from Makkah al-Mukarram, from Hudaybiyah to Medina. Now there are many parts of the surah we don't have time, but maybe inshallah next week I'll actually comment on some of those verses that are direct. The whole surah was to do with Hudaybiyah. So I may comment on some of the verses. Upon the Prophet wasallam's arrival in Medina, a few more incidents took place that are mentioned here in the upcoming part of the hadith. Number one, the story of the believing women who travelled from Mecca to Medina as muhajirat, as emigrants, following the treaty of Hudaybiyah. And the first one to travel amongst the women was Umm Kulthum bint Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt. Now, she was a young lady, unmarried, never been married before. And alone, she traveled from Mecca. Even though part of the treaty was that anyone who travelled to Medina would have to be returned. So Umm Kulthum bint Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt, she travelled to, to, to Medina from Mecca. And remarkably, this is how Islam affected people then. You know whose daughter she was? Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt. I'll explain more about it, inshallah. We don't have time. If I start now, it'll be quite late. 
But um, I'll comment on this uh, on that occasion. So quite a lot happened with women who traveled from Mecca to Medina. Allah revealed verses about them. And they were excluded from the article of the treaty. That was one thing. Directly related to Hudaybiyah. The second thing that's mentioned in the upcoming part of the hadith, on which we will conclude, is the story of Abu Basir and Abu Jandal, the son of Suhail ibn Amr, and what happened with them. Again, that was directly related to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, because following their incident uh, and their story, the Quraysh themselves asked the Prophet ﷺ to remove this article from the treaty and consider the Muslims exempt from that condition. So there are three, there are four parts left to the story of Hudaybiyah, the whole hadith. And inshallah I'll cover them next week and possibly the week after too. One is, uh, the revelation of the whole of Surah Al-Fatih. And I may comment on some of the verses related to the whole incident. That won't take too long. The second part is the story of the women traveling to Medina as emigrants from Mecca and their exclusion eventually from the treaty. Then the story of Abu Basir and Abu Jandal and the other Sahaba radiallahu anhum and eventually their exclusion from the articles of the treaty. And finally, the lessons from the whole story of Hudaybiyah, and also the reason why this was a victory. And we call the series and the hadith, the truce of victory, that apparently it was a humiliation. It was a wisdom of Rasulullah the command of Allah, that this apparent abject humiliation and disgrace, the world realized within two years that it was a victory of a grand scale, and not just a momentary victory resulting in the conquest of Mecca, but a victory for all times. So, inshallah, I'll comment on these four things in the next lesson, and possibly one after that. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Al-Kotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.